Let's, uh, let's go to our first slide, Sharon. Jesus. So we've been um, studying King David, um, and we've studied David as the shepherd, uh, David as the warrior, uh, and essentially David as the king, or I called him the statesman. And today we're going to finish up, I, I believe finish up King David, with David as the worshiper. Um, so let's just take a little pause. I just want to get clarity. I'm just feeling a little distraction in the spirit right now. And so, Lord, I, I just call upon you, your spirit to just be here, Lord. Oh, Lord God, that you just open up our hearts to receive from you. You give us and give me the words to speak, Lord, that it would sit right in our souls. Oh, mighty God. We just invite you, Lord. Mm, In the midst of distraction, in the midst of busyness, we invite you, Lord. Let your name be glorified, Lord. Let your name be glorified today. Let your name be glorified in our lives. It's all about you. It's all about being molded more into your image, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so if we can go... Actually, the next slide, I have a question to, to begin today. Remember, uh, today is about David being a worshiper. All right, so uh, a little question. What are the three sins of David in the Bible? Now, this is tricky stuff because everyone likes to focus on like how awesome David is as a king. He is awesome. He's a man after God's own heart. And he had much passion, a much joy, much vitality, much life inside of him. But sometimes that passion in life, when unchecked and submitted to the Holy Spirit, gave birth to earthly carnal sin. So does anyone know one of the three? Technically, there are four, but we're only going to do... All right, well, that's, that's good. Let's, let's, Sharon, since you're an awesome participant, we're going to try to get some other people involved. And then if we're stumped, we're going to you. Awesome. Sin of David. Yeah, so uh, you are not to covet or commit adultery, right? And so King David looked upon a woman by the name of Bathsheba, and he committed adultery with her. That's big time. That's big time. Joy. He's a murderer, right? So there's a follow-up sin to that. Right, he killed Bathsheba's wife, uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, uh, because he was trying to cover up his adultery. And he wanted her so much that to get rid of the sin of adultery, I guess, theoretically, he goes and kills the husband of the wife that he's infatuated with in order to, I guess, make it right. <laughs> make an honest woman of her. I mean, this is, this is bizarre. I mean, this is a man who had concubines and multiple wives, actually, but he wanted Bathsheba. Okay, good. That's two of them. So if we go to the uh, next slide. So we have adultery, Bathsheba, murder, Uriah. Does anyone know the third one? There's four that I can think of, but there's a third one that I want to focus on. Very good. Can can you say it nice and loud for us? Awesome. So that was going to be my punchline for the end of the sermon, but we have a a very biblically literate congregant here. Awesome. Good job, man. Uh, Yeah, so there's a third sin, and it's the sin of taking a census. 
Okay, and we'll talk about that in a moment for those of you who don't understand what's going on. Uh, but David takes a census. A census is essentially what's the population of Israel. It's very bizarre, and the Lord like really cracks down on him for it. I mean, so much so that the Lord actually brings a plague into the land of Israel in judgment for David's sin. Now, there's a fourth one, uh, which is his son uh, Abnon uh, is going to actually rape his own sister. Uh, and David uh, lets it go, go unpunished, if you will. Um, he doesn't condone it. He doesn't say, yes, yeah, son, you can do that. But as a father, as a king, as the head of the law of the land, he doesn't necessarily want to punish his son. So he kind of kind of looks the other way. And so that would be the, really the four sins. Uh, but the one that seems to be go unnoticed is Amnon and also the census, right, which we were just talking about. So very good. Uh, but let's, let's, let's think about this now. Here is a man after God's own heart who commits these really atrocious sins. So what makes him such a man of worship? How do we bestow this type of title upon him? It's it's unbelievable. We turn to Psalm 103. Uh, We're going to read a couple lines from here. Uh, This is a Psalm of David. This is what makes things all right, I guess. And that is a repentant heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your, all of mine, all of David's iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Verse 11, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Woo! Jesus himself says, he who has been forgiven much, right, understands the power of the gospel. Now, David, there isn't even the time of Jesus yet, uh, and he has a repentant heart. And the Lord says of David that there is no one really like him ever again until the coming of the Lord. He has a heart after God. He's beloved of God. And even in the midst of all of those sins and all of those horrible things that he did, he comes to the Lord with a repentant heart. And every single time that David is approached because of his sin, he doesn't try to hide it except for with Bathsheba, but then he gets a double whammy. He repents before the Lord. And that's a man who understands the loving kindness of the Lord. Hence, he's a man that can say, as far as the east is from the west, the Lord has removed my transgressions from me. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, paradigm. So let's get a little bit into the background of David as a worshiper so we have a little bit more of an understanding. And so today we're going to be uh, speaking out of 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. So this is after David has unified all the tribes, which we talked about two weeks ago. He's going to bring the ark of God up into Jerusalem. He's doing that, but he's going to encourage the people around him. And so we're going to see David as someone who is not just a king who happens to worship, but rather a worshiper who is a king. He's going to lead the people in, in corporate worship. First Chronicles chapter 13 Verses 1 through 4. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, all of the assembly of Israel, 
If it seems good to you, if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel. And with them to the priests and Levites who are in the cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. What we have here is one of the first things that David does as king. He brings the presence of the Lord back to the land of Israel, and he brings it to Jerusalem. He brings the ark up to the holy city, up to the capital. But there's something really interesting here. He says, we have not inquired of this before during the reign of King Saul. What this means here is that when King Saul was king over the land of Israel, no one inquired about the presence of the Lord. An entire generation, about 20 years went by, and there was not one citizen... Not one child of the Most High God that even inquired, where did the Holy Spirit go? <laughs> he was, very good. Now, this is unbelievable. We're not talking about like, oh, how come I don't have the joy and the happiness of the Lord in my life? I'm sure there were pr- plenty of Israelites who went through an entire generation who had joy. That had a level of happiness. That had a level of goodness. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about no one said, where is the really the physical presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst? To me, that's, that's phenomenal. Now, there are a lot of churches around the world who are walking in that. We want the joy of the Lord. We want the happiness of the Lord. We want what He gives us But no one is acquiring where is the spirit of the living God in the midst of the people. King David comes in and he says, come on. You haven't asked the question, where is the presence of God in our midst? Now go round up everyone. We're bringing the presence back. Round up everyone. All of Israel comes together. Scholars believe that to be between one and two million people. One and two million people converge into the city of Jerusalem. And as a nation, they all inquire and they all cry out, Holy Spirit, Spirit of, the, of God, come into the midst of us again. Can you imagine if an entire nation did that today? Can you imagine if an entire church did that today? Can you imagine if all 50 of us did that today? Can you imagine if all of us did that this morning? Or with a real heart. Not like, oh, I want your joy. Oh, I want your happiness. Give me something that I can have. No. We haven't inquired about your presence yet today, Lord. Where has the presence of the Lord gone? Man, if all of us did that every day of our lives or even every Sunday. Now, guys, don't get me wrong. This is an awesome place. The Spirit of God is here. No one can doubt that. No one can doubt that. But, man, we're talking about a whole other level. 
whole level where people are coming off the street because they're like, I walked past your building and I, and I saw or felt something, right? People coming into a mist and they're, and they're broken and they go out res- completely restored. People that come in sick and with diseases and with, and with cancers and they, they leave healed. We're talking about that level of the presence of God. Does anyone in here desire that? So 13 of us, which is not bad out of 50, but we need to have a check in our spirit. Do you want it or not? And if you want it, we need to cry out for it, people. We need to cry out in prayer. We need to cry out corporately on Wednesdays. We need to cry out corporately here together. That is the heart of a worship leader. That is the heart of David, a heart of worship. We inquire, inquire, inquire of your presence. Amen? Oh, hallelujah. Now, David is said to be a man after God's own heart, as it says in 1 Samuel and also in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, I believe. Now, we've studied David through his trials and tribulations and how those trials and tribulations will eventually produce a song. And he said, we said we have to have a cave experience, a difficulty to produce a song. Before David wrote the Psalms, he's in the cave in An Gedi crying out to the Lord, right? But now we need to look a little further into where does this heart of worship come from David? Why does he inquire of the Lord? Why is he the first one of a generation to do that? He has no one else to model it for him, people. It's very easy when you see someone excited in the Holy Ghost and you see what they have and you want to have it. David had no one as a testimony and an example. So if we go to the next slide, please. What really David is showing us in this story of bringing them up and questioning the people of inquiring about the Lord is this. A heart of worship is released out of an understanding of a cause and a revelation. I'm going to say this again. A heart of worship that inquires about the spirit of God is released outside of David and is released inside of us. When we have an understanding of a cause and a revelation. And today, if I was going to title this, I guess I would title it like David, a cause and a revelation. What we have here is a cause. David understood the cause that created a heart of worship. And what is the cause? The cause is to worship the Lord of hosts and to glorify his name. He understood that principle. He understood that it was all about a heart of worship was all about glorifying the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven. He knew that it was a purpose in his life. And we see this through his psalm, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of islands be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. All the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve up carved images. Verse 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. You see, David has his heart, and even at the end, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. He understands the cause of worshiping the Lord, that he's a holy God. 
Another thing here is the revelation. He has a cause, a desire to worship the glory of the Lord, but it also comes, worship comes out of that cause, and also comes out of a revelation that David has. David has a revelation that God is the God of his salvation. David writes in the Psalms, He is my salvation. He says, Yahweh Yeshua T. God is my salvation. He says, God is the Evan Yeshua. He is the rock of salvation. He says that he is a holy God. And that his love and his mercy endures forever. His cause is to glorify the Lord. And his revelation is that the God of heaven loves him, is his salvation, is here for him. When we tap into that cause and we tap into that revelation, you will inquire of the Lord every day for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? But we need to get the cause and we need to get the revelation again. Because our heart sometimes grows cold. The world begins to come in. We begin to forget as David forgot in the midst of his sin. So, he has his heart of worship. And as a king, he's now going to have a tremendous amount of power to implement this. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3. You don't have to necessarily go there, but I already said. He brings all of Israel together, between 1 and 2 million people, to assemble and to worship the Lord. First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 8. It says that they worship him, they worship God with all of their might. All of Israel comes together. All of Israel comes together. And they all, these words are very, very important. They all worship him with all of their might. Now you may say, well, how on earth do we worship the Lord with all of our heart and all of our might? Remember, this is a sermon series on the heroes of faith. What is their witness to us today? In the midst of David's sin, he could still worship. How does he do it? How does he conjure this up? How does he convince the people? The way in which they are able to do this is because King David and Israel had a cause and a revelation. They had a cause to glorify God. That's our cause on life, on on earth. And they had the revelation of the goodness and the loving kindness and the mercies of God. And from that, they're able to push out and do this. Now, it's unbelievable. David is is so much different than than so many other people in the Old Testament. David, more than any other Old Testament figure, uses the vocabulary and the understanding of salvation. If you read through the Psalms, you're like, this guy has to know about Jesus. He is my salvation. As far as the East is from the West... My sins were red as scarlet, but now they're white as snow. I mean, this guy had an understanding that other people in the older covenant did not apparently have. There's so much talk of salvation. There's so much talk of redemption. There's so much talk of grace. That's why so many Christians will read the book of Psalms, but they won't read the rest of the Old Testament. Because there's something in the Psalms that touches them, that they relate to in the understanding of the scriptures in the new. David, I believe prophetically, prophetically, because he's a king, he's a priest that worships the Lord, but I believe he's also a prophet. Somehow this guy, I believe, was tapped into something 
that he saw the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I, he could, I believe that he could not worship the Father like he did without at least getting some type of glimpse of the Son. Now for us who have not a glimpse of the Son, but the fullness of the Son, how much more we should be able to worship him. I mean, I'm going to read some of these. Psalm 118.4, God has become my salvation. Psalms 2 is one of the, uh, one of the more uh, intricate ones where it was actually considered a, a messianic prophecy, meaning a prophecy of the Old Testament of the coming of, of, of Jesus. And this is David, a thousand years before the coming of, of Jesus. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the whole nations, he's prophetically declaring that there's a day coming when all the nations will come up against the Lord and the Lord's anointed, meaning Jesus. The kings say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. David is not saying that God has said that David is his son. Even in your English translation, it's going to be capitalized S. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. God didn't give King David the nations for the inheritance. God has given the Son, Jesus, Yeshua, the nations for inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And probably the most famous part, verse 12, kiss the Son lest he be angry. So David has a, an understanding of the coming of the Lord. And he's able to understand this cause and revelation a little bit more. A heart of worship. Fine, a cause and a revelation. In the past, we've studied what praise is. If you guys remember, it was several months ago, went through the seven Hebrew words for praise. Shout, dance, clap, twirl, all this kind of crazy stuff. I don't know if you guys remember that or not. We talked about ministering to the Lord. That we're here not to be ministered to, but to minister to the Father. And when we touch his heart, he comes back and he so beautifully ministers us. And now we're going to talk about worship. There's praise, there's ministering, and there's worship. David is a worshiper. That's different than David as a praiser or David as a minister. David is a worshiper. We go to the next slide. Worshiper or to worship. The Hebrew word, there are two Hebrew words mainly for the word worship when you see it in your Bible. The first Hebrew word is sagad. It means to bow down, to prostrate, which is like this. Shechah, to fall down. Now I know, I know, and, I'm, and it's not wrong. It's not theologically wrong. It's a very common thing in a, in, in a, in a 21st century for pastors to say, well, worship is laying down 
are, are giving everything to the Lord, everything you do, do for him, your, your, your job, your life. Absolutely true. I'm actually going to teach on that a little bit. But the Bible is more raw than that. It's more primitive than that. Although there's plenty of scriptures talking about laying down your life as well. When you read the word worship in the Bible, it is literally telling you to get on your knees and lay down before the presence of a holy God. All the other stuff like lay down your life and lay down your career and all that kind of stuff as an act of worship. Yeah, that's good. And there are plenty of scripture verses about that. But in the Hebrew, when they're saying worship, you lay down and you submit to the presence of God. Has anyone ever been in a worship service where the presence of God is so thick, you're just like, like everyone's on their knees. Even the most, you know, most stern person is like, I just can't, I got it, right? When the presence of God shows up, it's very easy to worship because the presence of God is there. And so with all that being said, yeah, we physically do that, but there's also the allegorical, there's also the philosophical, there's also a little bit more spiritual where we lay things down to the Lord. We lay our physical bodies down, but we also need to lay down other things to the Lord. And so we go to the next slide here. This is where we had my little punchline. Um, so, okay. In the midst of David's sin, he is going to now be forced to lay things down. This is how he becomes such a worshiper. He becomes such a worshiper because of what he is learning that he has to bow down. And before we even get to that, to better understand how David was as a king, um, he, he is going to hire, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, so you don't think I'm lying about this, he is so emphatic to worship the Lord that he is going to hire worshipers to worship the Lord continually. He hires dancers I am paying you through government taxes to dance before the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He hires worshipers to sing and to play musical instruments. He hires one or two guys to just simply play the cymbal around the clock. He hires people to professionally give sacrifices and lift up incense to the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the type of heart he had as a king. He's going to put his money down the line to worship the Lord. So, the first sin of David, which we're talking about something that needs to bow down, right? Things in our life have to bow down to the Lord. Talked about the adultery. Essentially, what we have here is uh, David uh, is, of course, going to have to lay this down. He's caught in his sin. The prophet Nathan goes to him and says, what are you doing? And David, as a king, could have had Nathan killed, could have quieted the whole thing, just like he tried to kill Uriah. But what happens here is, what do we have here? David needs, in worship before a holy God, he needs to bow down, he needs to lay down his human desires and his human wants. His flesh wants to commit adultery. His flesh wants the woman. His flesh wants things. But the prophet comes to him, and what does David do in response? He writes Psalm 51. Lord, create me a clean heart, O God. 
Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. In the midst of his sin, he worships the Lord. Satan will tell you in the midst of your sin that you're not worthy to worship the Lord. In the midst of David's sin, he uses it to worship the Father. He has to lay it all down. We have to lay down our human desires and wants sometimes before a holy God. Because they're not lining up with what he wants. And I'm not talking about just strictly sexual sin or appetites or earthly lusts. There could be lots of things that you have to lay down. Maybe it's someone in the clergy who could be making a lot more money in business. But he feels a calling on his life. He's like, I'm going to make less money, but I'm going to do what the Lord has called me to. Maybe it's someone who's like, hey, I could pick up an extra shift Sunday morning and make a little bit more money, but I'm going to lay that down because I need to worship the Lord. Maybe it's someone on a prayer night. It's like, hey, I really like this TV show that's on on Wednesday night. Oh, man, I, I, I got this. I got that. Now you lay it down. You're like, no, I'm going to worship the Lord. I don't know what it is. I don't have that authority and I don't have that insight. But you know, right, when you spend time with the Lord, what he's telling you to lay down. A lot of times the things that you think is the thing that you're supposed to lay down is, is not the thing, right? There's something that's really deeper in there. You're like, whoa, I didn't even know that, that really was a thing. And the Lord's like, yeah, you got to put that down. Uh, the next thing, uh, which we, we, we said already, is the census. So we go to the next slide here. Uh, the census is really kind of a bizarre kind of thing. David is going to take a census or a population number of the people of Israel. He wants to know how many people are residing within the nation of Israel. Doesn't seem like a bad idea. We actually do that in the United States every 10 years. How many people live here? And we're presently at about 320 million people. David wants to do this. The problem with this is back in Numbers, the book of Numbers, and back in Deuteronomy, God specifically says, you are not to take a census of the people. And he goes on to continue. For the reason is you will begin to put your trust and your might and your abilities in your own self. When the nations come up against you, you go to war and you know you have more people than they do. You'll feel more strength and more encouragement. The Lord says, no, you shall put your trust in me and me alone. Now it says here, this is crazy. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan tempts David to take a census. There's not too many times, particularly in the Old Testament, where that vocabulary is used. The Satan stops what he's doing to zero in on one person and to tempt him. Now, I know a lot of times you're like, oh, well, you know, Satan is tempting me in something. Probably not. Probably not. Satan is not omnipresent. Omnipresent is everywhere. There's one who is omnipresent, God. Satan cannot be everywhere every time. And if you really think, you really think that you're that dangerous to the kingdom of, 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 the, of the world, that Satan is going to zero in on you, Boy, you got one heck of an ego. I mean, I would suggest, I, I think Satan probably zeroed in on Adolf Hitler. I think. And Joseph Stalin. 
uh, on Mao Zedong, the communist revolution. I, I think he's going after people that can like make major, major influence, right? But if you have a little temptation, like, oh, Satan is tempting me. I think it's actually your own earthly carnal desires. It's coming from your own mind. It's your own sin nature. But here, Satan is like, I am going after David. He goes after him. Take a census, David. Seems like it makes sense, right? So he takes the census. The problem here is that he is a man who is trying to put authority, put prestige, the abilities of Israel into his own hands. This is very synonymous of what we can do as a church. It's very easy for us to do this as individuals. You put your faith, your abilities, your trusts in yourself. What you can do, what you can do at work, what you can do in your relationships, what you can do in anything in life. It's the same principle that is there. And it can be very common for this to happen in, in churches. There's a lot of pressure, uh, even from our own denomination, to have membership and to tell them how many people are here. We don't have any membership. You're a member if you're here. I don't know if we're 40 people, 50 people, 80 people. I, I don't know. It really depends on the week, honestly, right? Now, we are not into the business of getting numbers and just building things for the sake of building things. We're in the sake of winning souls. And wherever someone goes to a church, that's up to them and their God. We're not here to grow just for the sake of growing. We're here to grow the kingdom, which all churches are a part of. But a lot of times in fellowships, we become numbers. A lot of times in life, we become numbers. The reality here is what God is trying to show David and show the people of Israel. And he's showing us is that, look, you are children of God. Church is not a business. We're 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 not here to make money. We're not here to get bigger screens. We're not here to get fog lights and lights. And if other churches want to do that, they can do that. But that's not our prerogative. We do not operate like the world operates, the scriptures say. The, the business mentality is more people, more money. Grow bigger, grow bigger, grow bigger. Have more things to entice people. Entertain. Have everything be fluid. Have everything go from step, lock, step, lock, step, lock, step. Keep people entertained. We know that people in education, we know that the average person only has about a, a, an attention span of about 20 minutes. That is why in most churches, worship is 20 minutes. And that is why in most churches, the sermon is 20 minutes. That's all you can do. Naturally. We know that in science. But we are not a business. What does the scripture say about us? I'm not a widget. I'm not a social security number. I am the living, breathing representation stones of the temple of God. And that's what you are. Come on now. I thought that was pretty good. We are not a business here. We are a family of saints coming together, looking to encourage one another, looking to glorify the Father. We don't care about the numbers. What we care about is the Holy Ghost being present in our midst so that the world can be changed. Amen. 
And if that means that we stay 50, but the entire community around us is completely impacted and they choose to go to other churches, praise God! We want people saved. We're here not to build our own kingdoms at our houses and in our jobs and in our careers, people. I am a son. I am a priest of the Most High God, and you are the same. David lost that for a moment. But what's so beautiful here is David's response. We can have the worship team come on forward. Jesus. We're going to 1 Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 21 is the chapter that discusses David's sin of taking the census. Chapter 21, we're going to uh, read a couple different ones here. Verse 8 says, So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. What is his iniquity and what has he done foolishly? He's counted the numbers. Seems innocent enough, but he's like, I've done this foolishly. Verse 18, therefore, the angel of the Lord, therefore, therefore, because of what David's heart was. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, verse 26, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. He answered him from heaven by fire on the altar. This is David offering up a sacrifice because his heart is a heart of worship. And the Lord of heaven's armies brings a fire on the altar and consumes the the incense, consumes the offering, consumes the sacrifice. Why? Why does God show up in such a manner in the midst of David's sin? In the midst of his sin... God is like, all right, as far as the east is from the west, I have removed my transgressions from you because you have a repentant heart, David. That's the key to worship, the key to worship, the key to revival in your hearts is repentance, repentance, repentance. It's not just repentance, I'm sorry for my sins, Lord, let me get to the pearly white gates. No, it's a repentance of, Lord, I've done things and think things and, and, and are doing things towards others that I should not do because it's not in your image. And I need to turn away and I need to be molded more into your likeness. And you'll get a little better at it because of his grace. And then more will come up and you'll be like, oh, I'm still not there. Oh, Lord, I just want to be like you to be transformed from glory to glory until I see Christ Jesus. Repentance brings the fire of God in your life. But there's a lot of people in the world and in the churches around the world who don't understand the concept that, yes, bow down before a holy God and repent before Him. I want to be molded more into your image. David, in the midst of his sin, repents. 
Come on now. I'm a brother in the Lord just like you. How many of you have been in the midst of a sin? A sin. I don't know what it is. It could be a whole gamut of things. And in the midst of it, you get this little quickening in your spirit like this is sin. And usually, if you're a human being like me, you are like, I know it's a sin, but let me continue with the sin. And when the sin is done, then I'll repent. Like right in the middle of the, in the argument, you're like, this is wrong, but let me finish the argument. Right in the middle of an, uh, of an image of lust. Like, oh, let me just finish this image of lust, and then I'll repent. In a moment of greed, you're like, I know I shouldn't be buying this, and I know I shouldn't be thinking like this, but let me just finish it, and then I'll repent. Anyone? David is different. In the midst of it, he doesn't allow it to continue. In the midst of it, he's like, I'm going to stop now. And in the midst of my sin, I'm going to worship the Lord of heaven. I have a good friend of mine who in his earlier years was faced with a lot of temptation. I'm going to leave it at that. He was faced in the midst of temptation. And he said the only thing that got him out of that pit of temptation is that in the middle of temptation, not when temptation was over, in the middle of temptation, he's like, Lord, I know what I'm thinking, what I'm doing is wrong, and it's, it's all around me, but in the midst of it, I am going to worship you. Seems so foreign. Wait, the Lord is going to allow you to worship him in the midst of your sin? Yes. Because you have a repentant heart. You're like, Lord, my flesh and my mind wants to do this. But my spirit wants to do this. And I'm conflicted, Lord. I'm just going to cry out to you. And he told me that he had the greatest deliverance in that. Because when your sinful nature and your, and your lust and your carnal mind, your carnal thinking is rising up, it will flee when you resist the devil and submit to God. And there's no greater submission than worship. He inhabits the praises of his people. If you're in the midst of sin and you, and you declare worship to the, of God, he shows up and sin can't be there because he's a holy God. I encourage you in that. If you're like, ah, this is wrong, stop. Declare the goodness of the Lord. Worship him in the midst of it. Don't let Satan say you're not worthy of worshiping right now. No, it's at that place that the, the most beautiful psalms and songs are written. If David waited for the thing of Bathsheba and the thing of Uriah to be over, we would never have Psalm 51. But we have Psalm 51 because right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the conviction of he says, create me a clean heart, oh God. I can't do this on my own. It's only going to come from your spirit rising up in me. Oh, Jesus. It's an old saying that the driest of wood burns the brightest. It's when you're in that pit, it's when you're in that place of, of difficulty that the most fiery flames of worship can become manifest. But there's one other reason. Not just because of repentance. There's another reason why fire of God Holiness of God descends upon the altar. Jesus. I left it out on purpose. 
right before verse 28, before the fire comes, before the fire comes, right? We sing it, let your fire fall, let your wind blow, let your glory come down, right? We sing these worship songs, but before, before the fire comes, there's repentance. Before the fire comes is verse 24. Then King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy this land for the altar at full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. He, let, let me paint the story. He goes to build an altar, and a guy by the name of Arnon is like, yo, you're the king. You want to build an altar? Here's my land. Build the altar right here so you can give up sacrifices to the Lord. David as the king is like, no, I will not take what is yours as worship. I worship the Lord only and only and only if it costs me something. My God is so good and is so holy that my worship unto him must and always must come with a cost. It's not the cost of one, two, three. It's not the cost of meeting on Thursday nights and worshiping to practice for today. It's not the cost of coming in at 9 o'clock, 8.45, and tuning the instruments and practicing. That's their cost. What cost do you have? What sacrifice do you bring to a holy God in worship? Cost may be, all right. I'm not doing three songs today. We're doing five. So be it. It's a cost of time to you, to a holy God. Maybe it's, oh, man, but when I'm worshiping right now, I'm thinking about that I have to go home today and I have to stain my fence. I literally have to do that. Or I, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm going to lay that down. No, right now, every thought, every desire, everything, I just need to lay down and I give it to you, oh, God. That's how the fire comes. That's how the fire comes. How does it come? It comes with repentance. It comes with you laid down something of cost to God. And it comes with a manifestation of a cause and a revelation. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amos chapter 9 verse 11 says, that the day is coming, thus saith the Lord, that he shall restore the tabernacle of David. He shall restore worship once again. He shall restore the tabernacle, the tent, the ark. It has fallen down. People are not paying attention to the tabernacle of David, the, the, the epitome of worship. He's going to restore it again, he says one day. I believe the Lord is doing that now. He's doing that in the 21st century. He is restoring worship to the church again. In fact, next slide and last slide, Chairman. John chapter 4 says this. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship. So many sermons are built off of... Off of uh, um, to worship in spirit and truth. And what does that mean? I want to just focus right now on this. The Father is seeking those who have a cause in their heart. The Father is seeking those who have a divine revelation in their heart. He's seeking those who will bow down 
the things of the world down to him. He's looking for those who are willing to give up a cost, no matter how small or how big, to worship the Lord so his fire of revival can come into your heart. David, when he goes up against Goliath, he looks out of all of Israel and says, is there not a cause in Israel? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Meaning, how can you allow these pagans to rule you? Ah, Jesus. Father, we just pray right now that a cause and a revelation would be watered inside of our souls. Father, I pray right now, I pray, I pray into the ancient wells inside of us. I say, give forth, bring life, bring forth water, living streams right now. Any love that has grown cold, awaken. Ryan, remind people of the cause, the cause that God is a holy God, that his name shall be made manifest and honored and gloried onto all of the earth. And a revelation. The revelation of the Son of God. Who bore it all. So that I can enter into the Holy of Holies. And have access to the Spirit of the living God. Father, I pray that we here would build up altars in our life to you. Altars, places of meeting with God. That we would sagid, that we would bow down physically before you at times when we're moved, but also bow down the things of the world. Any high place, any idol that's found its way into our midst, reveal it to us now, Lord, so we can have repentant hearts and we can destroy it. pray for a cause. We pray for the revelation of the goodness of the Lord. That we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That He loves us. That He cherishes us. That He's seeking communion with us. That He brought Himself down for reconciliation. That in the midst of sin, in the midst of anything, that we can still have access to God. Oh, show us the love of the Father again, oh God. Show us the love of the Father. Show us the beauty of the blood of Jesus. Remind us, remind us like you reminded King David. Remind us, remind us, oh God. So we can worship you in spirit and truth. So your fire would fall. We take not, we take not our strength in men. We take not our strength in bank accounts. We take strength in who you are. Who you are. You're a good God that loves us. You're a good God that wants to pour out your spirit on all flesh. Oh, let there be a cause. Let there be a revelation in Bristol Hope Assembly. I encourage you, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of sin, 
the midst of greed, in the midst of lust, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of hate, in the midst of fear, in the midst of anxiety. Stop it, dead in the tracks. Just when it comes upon you, remember this moment, remember this day, and stop. I know it's still going to come at you. I know it's still going to come at you. The anxiety, the, 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 the lust, the, 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 the greed, all of it's going gonna, it's gonna to rise up and it's going to still want to come to you. But just do, do me a favor. Just in the midst of it, just try it out. When it's coming to you, when it's coming to you, just, just stop and say, I'm going to utter. I'm going to utter the most simple, simple act of worship. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And in that mist, like King David, I'm telling you, watch the fire of revival, the fire of repentance, the fire of the gospel, the fire of the spirit of the living God, the fire that purifies all things, the fire that brings redemption, the fire that brings power, the fire that sets the captives free, the fire that makes the brokenhearted healed again, the fire that cleanses diseases, the fire that brings grown men to cry before a holy God will come upon you. Let us stand. I did not mean for this to be a condemning message in any way. Sometimes at the end, I'm like, oh boy, how did I say this? How how was it received? This is a word of let's just bow down things before the Lord. Let's engage in worship like David worshiped. Laying it all down before him because that's what God asked for. What shall I do to be saved? You shall declare upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We don't declare the word Jesus. We declare the word Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Lord has control and ownership over every facet of our lives. Bill, if you can come on down for prayer. Ghost. I feel I feel just if, if, if one of the Samuels, Samuel's family, if, if any of you want to come down, just feel the Holy Ghost just saying that you have a you have a part to play, to pray for people if you feel comfortable with that. So if Bill and if someone from the Samuels family, I just, I just feel that from the Holy Ghost, I'll be here. I just encourage you today, right now, and also during the week. The things that you need to lay down. If you need a resurgence in your heart for a heart of worship where you lay it all down, all down, all down to the Lord. I encourage you just to come on down. We're going to pray for you. We're going to stand with you. During the week in the midst when the world comes up against you and things start to come, I just encourage you, just Jesus is Lord. Hmm. 
feel free to stay in the presence. Feel free to go downstairs and do or, or go home, whatever, whatever you have for today. Have a wonderful day. Before you just before we go, though, I just encourage you for a moment, just breathe it in. Just breathe it in. Have a wonderful week. Amen. Jesus, Jesus, we pray. We pray for more. More of a heart of worship, Lord. Let it come from a cause and let it come from a revelation.